Well, this morning we're going to continue and uh, thinking about Advent and Christmas, and, and uh, it hasn't over. It's not over. Um, we talked about this before here at Family Bible. I think we have, but Christmas is a season. It starts on the twenty fifth of December, and we celebrate through what's it called? Epiphany, January sixth. Epiphany is a revelation from God. So uh, my prayer for you in the season of Christmas, in the season of Christ's um, coming and being present with us, that you would be mindful, continually mindful of the season of celebration that we're in, and you'd be waiting. Man, I love it. Because, you know, we celebrate Epiphany with the wise men who come seeking him, right? And, and they come after he's born, it says, to the house where he was, he was born. So uh, I hope this Christmas season you're looking for an Epiphany. And with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and show you the last of our videos from the series we've been doing. The Advent Conspiracy, we've hopefully made that journey. I was talking to a few folks this morning, and some of us are now waiting for the January bills to come in, right? I do want to say, so many of you I talked to this morning, it's funny, maybe it's an age thing. How was your Christmas? I got this and that and that and this and that. You know what I mean? And, and there's part of you, even as an adult, that remembers that as a child, part of me, and you just remember being so excited about what you got. My favorite thing is when you say, how was your Christmas? And someone says, the whole family was in. Huh. That's pretty cool. There are gifts that are ours for the having that we ignore, for the gifts that we think we need the gifts that we think we really want. I hope that this Christmas season, and it's not over yet, I hope you can be attentive. Someone said, we've got gatherings still to go to. I hope you can be attentive to the gifts that God is giving you and your family and each other and friends and Jesus and worship and presence. Presence with a C-E, not a T-S. So I hope that this Advent conspiracy, we've talked about this waiting for Jesus, it culminated here for me on Christmas Eve. It culminated Christmas Day with Christ's birth, and I hope it did for you too. And so today we're going to kind of reflect back through a little bit and, and talk about this final act, this final portion of the Advent conspiracy, the thing that actually I believe would drive us forward into the whole new year, no matter what station of life you're in. This thing can shape 2010 for you. This conviction can shape your new year. So I pray that this morning, uh, as we reflect through this, that, that you would journey with me uh, and, and just think about what the potential is for a year spent dwelling in God's presence. Well, the series is called Advent Conspiracy, and the first week we talked about the need to worship fully. It's kind of a funny thing to say, worship fully, worship fully, worship fully. I don't know, I, I've probably spent too much time saying it. But it, it's, it's a complete and total presence before God. It's this idea that you realize that the more that you're, you are drawn near to God, the more you realize he's always been there with you. And yet, our failure to acknowledge this, this place in this sweet spot we talked about three weeks ago, of God's sovereignty, of God's will, of God's blessing, of God's spirit, of God's presence, if we dwell in that place in our life, we can live lives of worship all the time. Whether you're here on a Sunday morning, whether you're with friends having coffee, whether you're at work pushing for that deadline, you can turn all things back to the one who made you, 
the one who I would say supersedes everything else in your life. The story that Jesus came to tell us through his life is this grand narrative of God's love for us and it means this lifestyle of worshiping fully, wholly, completely in him. And, and that was where we started. We started saying, if we could get this Advent season right, if we could pay attention to Jesus, if we could maybe deny the culture a little bit, we might experience God more fully in our life. I hope you did. If not, there's 2010. You can live there now. So we talked about worshiping fully and what that means. The second week, and I talked about this, was probably the hardest for me. It was spending less, and not because I was hung up on it. It's just a weird thing to talk about, I felt like. It's a weird thing to talk about. How much money do we spend? I, I felt like I was like that Scrooge, you know, curmungeon who was saying, you know, no turkeys for the poor, you know what I mean? And that is so far from what we do in our culture with Christmas. I, I see a report, and it said the number one category for Christmas this year was technology. I am a total tech geek. I love all the toys. You know, I'll say something here about Apple, Mac and Apple products, Macintosh, that's like not even accurate anymore. It's like a cult. It's like a culture and it just sucks you in. One of the smallest gifts we had in our house this year was an Apple product and we just... And then you're on your computer trying to make it work, and you're like, this is so cool, and you buy into the, and I think, what's going on with technology? I tell you, I think in some ways we think it's our savior. If, if uh, there's a little tangent here, but I think we believe if, if we can get enough stuff on this little guy here, if we can get in front of enough screens in our life, if we can get connected through Facebook and Twitter and whatever's going to be next, because Twitter's too slow, we're going to finally have it together through technology. I really believe it. I believe as a culture we think technology will save us. And that's not true. And so this year, technology, if you were selling something, technology was the place to sell it. But this week we talked about the need to spend less, to, to be discerning about what we're doing with our money, to think about it, and not to not give turkeys to the poor at Christmas, for heaven's sakes. Give turkeys to the poor for Christmas. But not to spend so much on ourselves, on false saviors, on those trinkets and toys that in two or three days, parents, <laughs> you've been there, you end up hurting yourself with on the floor. You know, the worst, the, the most dangerous part of a Christmas morning is the sweeping up the trash because there's so many little parts and pieces already mixed in the garbage that stuff may never work again. The toys may never even work once. We spend so much on the frivolous things and we give so little of the important things, which led us to our third week, which was giving more. And I, I, those of you who are here, the children put on a, I would say, a classic musical or just a beautiful expression of what it looks like to, to give creatively, to give yourself. I don't know if you were here to see it. It was last week. Can you believe it was seven days ago that we were here doing that? What a week. I was blessed by you guys doing your part last week. I was blessed by the costumes that were made by hand. I don't know why, but those paper beaks, were they like the cutest? You know, we could have CGI'd all that stuff. 
We could have made a little computer, computer illustration up here instead. There was something that was gorgeous about it because it was made. It was real. It was tangible. It had little mistakes. Someone said after the thing, after the uh, children finished, I said, that was great. And they, and they knew what was supposed to happen, which is cool because when you're experiencing it, you don't all the time. And they said, well, you know, there were a few problems. Cool. It wasn't perfect. How awesome is that? Giving more of yourselves, taking risks, sharing more. Praise God. I appreciated that this season, so many of you led us in that giving of yourselves this season of Christmas, this season of Advent. So all these things, giving more, spending less, worshiping fully, lead us up to this last kind of stop over here on this series, and, and it's this idea of loving all. Loving all. And if you've seen in the video, it ran it backwards. Love all, and then you worship fully. It can go either way. But there's this final call that we hear from Jesus where he shows us how to love and how to love not just a few, not just those who are around in the living room with us, not just those who are here with us today, but everybody. Love everybody. Love all the time. I'm amazed at this thing here. What do we call this set right here? The, yeah, the manger scene. Some else said it too. The nativity, right? Just love the imagery of what's happening here. I don't know if you had one at your house on Christmas Day. This drawing in of love. Look at how everybody's kind of bent, bent over and just, it's just anticipation. It's just waiting. Now here's the thing. You see, I've been here before. Well, I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. But I've been in this place before as a parent. Some of you have too. There's that moment where this little bundle of joy, this God's blessing, this, this incredible gift of God, this knitting together in your mother's womb, this truth of the scripture that the two shall be one flesh and dwell among them, that, that there's something, a manifestation of God's love, of his sovereignty, of his blessing. And every one of you, Dan said that song earlier, every one of you are proof of that. Every one of us. And in this place, there's this, love this sweetness about it but here's the thing see that doesn't look a lot like our lives today this is pretty simple I can tell you as a parent when this little bundle of joy popped into your life <laughs> everything went crazy do you know what I'm saying like you thought you had sense before you had a baby you know? You thought you knew what you were doing. By the way, those of you who don't have babies, you're like, I know what I'm doing. That's right. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> you have no idea when you have a baby what's happened. This little bundle of joy, this is so sweet. Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, everybody's kind of just, oh, the, you know, the reality must have been for them. The baby born in a manger. I know today when you have a baby with car seats and what are those things called? The little pop-up things? The playpen things? You know? The strollers? The diaper bags? The, have you had anybody come to your family gathering this year that had a baby? It's like they're moving in. They're there for like an hour and a half. You know? Have to have everything. Here's the sippy cup. Here's the bottle. Here's the diapers. 
the reality of a baby is a mess. It's crazy. I think about the realities for Jesus when he was born. We sing these songs at Christmas. But I think about what did it really look like for Mary and Joseph? What did it really look like? You know, I, uh, I had an experience this week I'll share with you. We don't have children who can't go to the bathroom on a toilet anymore. <laughs> and I don't say I have to gross you out, but that's a crazy concept once you don't have a toddler anymore. But when you have a toddler, you accept that as normal life. That you've got to deal with poopy. Are you serious? You forget. Then you get a toddler and you go, oh, you smell bad. You know, this is the reality. No crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus was laying there, right? All the realities for Mary and Joseph. The realities of bringing this, you know, I, I don't know too many stories. Now, there's a few. Maybe some of you are those stories where you had everything together when you had your first child. You had a plan. You had executed it perfectly. And the child was here, you know, and you had all the gear you needed. But man, what a great story that we hear in Christ that he came from parents who were on a journey. He came with parents who, when they showed up, didn't know where they were going to sleep, how they were going to feed him, what they were going to do. In this place and at this time, God chose to show up in this way. For so many of us, this is comforting to know this is how God works that he would come in the form of a baby in that situation. Not born with all the trappings, born with hardly anything. What a comfort to us. I was thinking, though, with Mary and Joseph traveling like they did, the blessing for them is they didn't have a lot of stuff to carry. <laughs> right? Can you imagine making that trip now with the Graco stuff? It would take more than one donkey. That's for sure. I want to flip that on its head a minute. Because we're not going to talk today about Mary and Joseph and the manger and all the stuff about the love that we think that we have for the baby. I want to talk about the reality of God, the eternal God, the one who created all things manifesting in this child in a manger. We know what this love around the child looks like. We know what that is. We've experienced that in some way. But to think that God himself made flesh and came so vulnerably as a baby blows me away. The way that he came to express love, not as one who had it all together, but as one who needed help, as one who needed parents to comfort and care, needed his mother at his taking care of him and needed his father to stand up and do the right thing. Boy, I tell you, if you want some good parenting, you know, thoughts on parenting, read, read the gospel according to the birth of Jesus about a mom who would do anything for God, about a dad who would stand in the gap for the sake of a child and for the sake of the world. It's a beautiful story, the way God came among us. So today we're going to open the scriptures. We're going to pop through a few here. I pray that God's Spirit's going to move with us as we go because without Him we are lost in this. Let's pray together and open the Word today. Father, we come today thanking you for this time of worship. We thank you today for the way you're raining down blessings on us. And we pray that 
that everything that we experience would just remind us of the spiritual realities we have in you. We long to be in closer relationship with you. We think we understand that manger scene 2,000 years ago, and yet I'm convinced we, I don't understand it. Father, I pray today that your spirit would dwell richly among us, that you would be present in every heart and mind gathered here today, that for whatever reason that we dragged out of bed and came today, I pray you would speak to us, that you would be God today in our lives. We're not here to defend you or prove you. We're here to wait for you. And we love you and thank you. Give you praise for how you've already showed up. We pray today, uh, not that your word would be alive, but that our minds would be open to that truth that is living. We pray today that we would know more of Jesus, that we would accept more of your spirit in our life, that we would worship you more fully. We thank you today for this opportunity to get into your word and to share together in Christ. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to start off because I think that this story, this narrative of the baby tells us the first, well, we're going to come back to that, tells us the first thing about um, how this happens, what happens here. And I'm going to ask you to turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 13. Now, many of you can probably already tell me what this verse says. And if you don't read your Bibles hardly at all, you probably know this verse if you've ever been, this uh, set of scriptures, if you've ever been to a wedding of any kind. It doesn't even matter what you believe. If you're having a wedding, you're probably going to have heard this in your life. There's this thing that comes before a child, which is this expression of love, this expression of care. This thing between a man and a woman. And this is where you younger folks who don't have children yet come into play. Because almost from the time you're old enough to know that boys and girls are different, you begin to sense this pull in your life towards having someone, towards being with someone, towards loving someone fully. And, and every time that this, these things, these, these, what is it, not a game, it's these little interactions, they're serious games. Courtship, the dance, the ritual. When you get to this place with another person where you think you can trust it, you think you know them well enough, you think you can risk it, you think you can try to love them, then you propose. Then you accept. Then you trust and you share. And for so many that manifests in a service where you're married, union, the two are made one flesh before God. And, and even if you aren't there, and even if you're saying, yeah, I can do all that without the marriage thing, well, I'll tell you, I don't think that's true, first of all. But secondly, even if you believe that's true, you've done something in your heart already by committing to someone else in your life. And so we love to read this 1 Corinthians 13 because if you read through there, and I'm not going to read it today, but if you read through there, it tells you all these great things about love, especially in verse 4. You know, it starts off, love is patient, love is kind. We know this verse. We hear these words, and we talked about them earlier this year here. And yet I want to point out something to you that comes at the very end of chapter 12. Whoever broke the Bible up in the, the chapters and verses left it there hanging at the end of chapter 12, and it's easy to miss it. And it's the first truth we find about this love for everyone. It just says this simply. Paul says, And now I will show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way. And in that day when you're having a, a wedding, a union between a man and a woman, you're, you're celebrating that. You're aspiring to that excellent way. 
This comes here in the, in the book of uh, Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, after talking about what it means to have gifts in the body and be the church. And Paul says, all that stuff is really, really cool, what you can do and the way God's equipped you. And yet, I'm going to show you the coolest thing ever, the highest thing to aspire to. We can, here's the danger, we can ascend the wedding ceremony and we can hear these nice words and we can all get the warm fuzzies in our heart. The truth is that it's a dangerous thing. In that moment, when that couple is standing there before God and all of us, gathered together to seek to, to have this new life, to commit to it, there's a lot of peril. Do you ever sense that at a wedding? You ought to. There's a lot of risk. Fear and trepidation comes to mind. There's a potential for rejection, a potential for hurt, potential for scorn, for failure, a potential that you would open yourself to another person, trusting fully, and they would abuse you or hurt you or in some way. That the thing that's supposed to be great becomes awful. And yet that is the place we stand in love. I want to say something about the other side of that situation. There's a potential there for knowing and being known. There's a potential for, for, for fulfillment, uh, for true relationship. And I even wrote this thing down. I thought it was kind of weird, but I think it's totally true. Salvation from yourself. To be able to let someone else in this life help you along. And in this place, this isn't about a man and a woman doing this. It's God doing it sovereignly over them. And Paul says here, this is the most excellent way to love one another. And we use his verses in our ceremonies that sometimes are so superficial. It's this, I'm going to get a little Greek here, her hyperbole, right? Herpobole is the Greek. And it's this idea of throwing something. Paul says, all this stuff is great. All the stuff you aspire to is great, but I'm going to throw the long pass today. I'm going to shoot for the stars. I'm going to tell you what's over the horizon. I'm going to tell you what's worth aspiring to. And it's love. We could center our whole lives around that thought this year. He actually calls this the, the um, hyperbole hodos, which is the road thrown over there. The one that we can try to travel on this year. And then you can then, after you get that thought in your mind, that this is this aspiring thing, this longing thing, Paul begins to say the words in 1 Corinthians 13. Then you can understand what he's calling us to do, to love one another in the most excellent way. So I want to go through here. First thing, though, is lo this love is excellent. But I want to go through here. I want to show a few things about love that's going to really, I pray, that God's going to use for us in this uh, year to come. And the first is this, that love, love is uh, dependent, right? And I'm going to ask you to turn, if you would, to the book of 1 John. I'm trying to find your page number. There it is, 846. 846. The book of 1 John, chapter 4. We're just going to touch a few scriptures today because I want you to hear 
all this love that we would talk about, all this that we would aspire to uh, this Christmas season, this Advent, this coming of Christ, is related to the love that we find in Christ. And look in verse 7, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. Now listen to the words. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We hear here that this love that God is calling us to church is a love that is in him and him alone. And we've talked about it before, but all the good things you can do, all the, the righteous acts you can try to aspire to of your own are meaningless and worthless without the love that God has for us first. The best gift we have to offer is the gift that he's given to us. And I want you to see that he says, this is how God showed his love. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. The truth of this act of coming, this act of advent, this act of, of uh, incarnation that we find in Jesus is that as helpless and hopeless as he was, as much as we like to sing the story about Mary and Joseph having no crib for a bed and the mean innkeeper sending them away, God came to show love to them. The whole point of Christmas is that when the, the Word was made flesh to dwell among us, it was a gift to us coming for our sake. John says, it's, this is the truth. It's not that we love God. It's that God loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And for that fact and that fact alone, we can do some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in a minute, which is hard stuff which is to love everybody. To love all, everybody, to love all the way that Jesus does. You see, this love that, that we have is dependent on God. We can't do it. That's why it's beyond our capacity because we know it, it, it's too risky. It hurts too much. There's too much potential. We are called to love everyone. I'm going to jump ahead. We're going to go to John, the book of John. Because I want to talk about kind of the core of the day, the, the, the core text. And it's this idea that this love that we're going to talk about is a risky business. And I want to get there. If you could turn the book of John in your Bibles for me today. So, in this baby, there's, there's some truth right here. It's, it's on page 748 if you use one of our Bibles. If... There's some truth that the way he came was a high risk to Jesus. You know, we talk about high-risk pregnancies. We talk about the, the dangers, uh, you know, whatever it would be. And, and Jesus came in this very vulnerable position as this child, uh, dependent on his mother and his stepfather to come and to care for him. Isn't that cool, by the way? He came with a mother and a stepfather. To be completely dependent on them. Dependent 
on us. So this text today from John should be troubling. Because Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, says this. He says it was just before the Passover feast, in verse 1. And Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own, listen to it, who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. This evening meal that we're going to read about is this Passover feast. This is the celebration of the Israelites being delivered from Egypt as slaves. This is the high point of the Jewish calendar. And at that evening meal, it says the evening meal was being served. And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And so he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a bowl and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had taken off of himself. I want you to catch this, Jesus. I want you to catch this baby who loves in such a risky way. The time had come for him to do what he was called to do. He knew what he was called to do. It says there, the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And I think, and I, we talk, I've talked to you about Judas before, I think it's really telling that in that moment, I don't know how you would have responded. Knowing what was about to go down, I don't know how you would have, I don't know what I, my response would have been. But I don't think it would have been to show the full extent of Jesus' love. The one who betrayed him was already there at the table. And in that time and in that place, Jesus chose to love him. Isn't that, is that crazy to you at all? Not just to love him like say, hey man, I love you. We're cool, right? We're tight. And then later on, Jesus is going to say, go do what you must do quickly. Right? But to love him in such an overwhelmingly humble way. As to get up from the table, I want you to hear it today. To walk around to the 12 folks that he had poured his life into. Three years he had shown them his love. And this time he went around the table just like you're sitting at today. And he stooped down and started to wash their feet. One after the other. And then he comes to the one who betrayed him. And it doesn't even mention it. Why? Because it's like everybody else to Jesus. He just loves him. And he washes his feet. We get caught up in this text because there's a spot in here where it talks about Simon Peter. 
And his little putting his foot in his mouth, you know, with Jesus, as he's so apt to do. But I want to skip it today because there's something about God's presence. There's something about Jesus' knowledge of his Father. There's something about the relationship that he has with the one who created him, who, who he manifested as, who he's come to earth. I don't pretend to understand all these mysteries, but there's something to the reality of his revelation to us, coming as a baby, that at this time, at this place, as a man about to die, to leave, he knows who he is, he knows who he is in God the Father. He knows where he's going, and so he can risk loving Judas. How about you? Can you risk loving the person that's going to hurt you the most? Can you, can you risk the danger and peril found there? I believe that's what God is calling us to as believers in Jesus Christ. Because of his confidence and his relationship and his presence with God, he got up from the meal, took off his clothes, and washed their feet. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he asked them in verse 12, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that is exactly what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, listen, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. In that place, Jesus says, you're next. You want to be like me? Love like me. You want to know me? Love like me. I want you to hear the words from uh, this Advent time. We, we are blessed to live in this time of ridiculous love. We are blessed to exist in this time between Christ's first coming as the baby, his death and resurrection, and power over sin that we can have just by accepting it. And then we can actually live a life of risking love. You know, Family Bible Church, I pray in 2010, we would risking, risk loving people. That we would risk some things to love others this year. Do some stuff that people say, that's crazy. There's no profit in that. For the sake of love. That's my prayer for us this next year. We are blessed to live in this time between his first coming, his death and resurrection, ascension into heaven, and his second coming whenever this type of love will no longer be possible. We will no longer have the pleasure, the privilege of pouring love over those who don't know him. I want you to hear what it says in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this. He's, after he talks about these stories of how much God loves us, he says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels come with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. Verse 32. All the angels will be gathered before him 
And he'll separate the people, listen, one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, listen, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom that's been prepared for you since before the creation of the world. Because whenever I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. Whenever I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. That's risky business. When I needed clothes, you put clothes on my back. And when I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. And it goes on in verse 37. The righteous then will answer, The king, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will say to them, I tell you the truth, whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. The love that we're called to express to others is our very reward. It's the very call of the king. And then the whole thing goes the other way. He says, then he's going to say to those on his left, and I want to say that this time of love will have closed. This time of pouring yourself over others will have been gone. You think it's dangerous to risk loving someone else? It's dangerous to not do it. It's dangerous to not love them because there's a time coming, listen to it, where it says, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels because I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing. I was a stranger and you did not ask me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and you ignored me. I was in prison and you could care less. And they're going to say, Lord, when did we see you? When did we miss it? And he says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you didn't do for them, you didn't do for me. Then they will go away for eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. I don't preach. I don't say that this morning to scare you in any way. You're not going to get scared out of hell into heaven. You're going to get loved into heaven by the king. But I hope that if you know this love, that this year you would pour it over somebody who doesn't deserve it. That you would risk it for somebody who might not give anything back. I want to close where we started. 1 Corinthians 13. Because Paul says something else in here. He says this. He says, love never fails. It just doesn't happen. It's not possible that love would fail. But I wonder, church, I wonder, brothers and sisters, I wonder, do we live like that? Don't we live like love is just a step away from failure? I could risk it, but it might go badly. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love never fails. So the question that I have, that I asked Jesus in his coming as a baby, that I asked Jesus as he bowed down and washed his disciples' feet is, Jesus, why risk love? Why risk love? But I think 
It's the only place that salvation can be found. I would encourage you to believe what the Word says today, that love never fails. I would encourage you to gird yourself in that truth and then to be ridiculously loving towards others. I can tell you that every time you get hurt, I'll cry with you. And I'll say, let's go love some more. Let's keep doing this thing that God has called us to together. The word reports something to us. If you read the narrative of Jesus' death on the cross, if you read the narrative from the time that he's at the table, a little table like this today with his disciples, Within 24 hours of the time that he's cradling Judas's foot, within 24 hours from the time that he is bowed down before him, washing his feet and saying, I'm making you clean, he will be dead on a cross for the sins of all people. One day, he gave it all up. And he gave it up for you and for me. And so today, if you don't know him, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say, if God's been working in your heart, and you need to give it to him and just love it, just love him and let him love you, I would invite you to do that today. That ridiculous love, just accept it. Just receive it today. And that's going to be my prayer for you, that you would do that today. And for the rest of us, my prayer is that we can follow his example. We can love dangerously. We can take risks. And even if it means a day later we're betrayed to our death, we would say, we're just like you, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our call. That's our call together. Please pray with me. Jesus, today we come standing before you, the mighty God of all creation, and we can't get our heads around it. The miracle of your birth, the fact that you would condescend and become a baby, and then the miraculous life you lived of love that at the end, at the very end, Lord, you were giving everything up for us. Today I pray that your spirit, uh, as your spirit's been working among us, Lord, that you would be glorified that we could actually acknowledge you as creator, as the one who made us and who loves us beyond what we can understand. Today we need that love from you, Lord, and so we depend on you for it. Today in every heart and mind here, Lord, you've planted a seed for a ridiculous love towards you, a ridiculous love towards those that you would die for. So today I pray that your kingdom would come that your will be manifest among your people. If it's not found anywhere else on the whole planet, may it be found in our lives, Lord. We love you and thank you for what you've been doing. And we pray that uh, for all the times that there's hurt and all the times that there's failure, your spirit would intercede and lift us up and press us on. That that would all become um, times that are making us ready for the battle that lies ahead your kingdom and your glory. And we love you and thank you. You are so good to us. You're so good to us.
So today we just give you praise for everything you've done. Pray these things in Jesus, in Jesus' holy name. We thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're going to partake in that same offering, that same Last Supper, right before Paul writes all about the love of God has for us. He writes in chapter 11, he says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had thanked God for it, he broke the bread and he gave it to everyone at the table. And he said to them, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after they had eaten supper, he took a cup, and again he said, This cup is a new promise made in my blood. And every time you do this, every time you drink it, remember me. And then he says this to us, church. Every, for any time that you eat this bread or drink this cup, you're pro proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to invite you as a table today. You'll see there's a, a napkin under there. It's prepared communion for you. I would invite you to open that up, partake as you feel inclined. It's an offering not made by us, the church. It's an offering made by Jesus, the same one that came in the form of a baby. And I would just invite you to receive that today and maybe receive the promise of what it could be to love, what it could be to love others like he did.